0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with Pastor and Teaching Elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. To welcome you to our gathering today. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. A big shout out to all of our dads who are here today with their kids, um, without their wives and moms who are on our ladies' retreat. So Great job on getting here and uh, getting your families here, and we appreciate you making the sacrifices to gather with us. I think we have a picture of our ladies that are on the retreat, maybe, so they're all all they are. They're in their uh, morning session now. We're getting ready to wrap that up, and they'll be traveling back here uh, over the course of the afternoon, so we want to be in prayer for them, uh, but really thankful that God enabled so many of our ladies to go on the retreat this year, and I know we'll hear... Uh, for weeks to come, just some of the results and um, fruit that'll spring up from things that we're taught and just the strengthening of relationships. And so, uh, thankful that God made that possible for our ladies to be a part of that this year. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we looked two weeks ago at the idea of where good works kind of fit into the process of our salvation. And we've spent Uh, a great amount of time talking about good works not happening before our salvation, but really coming after our salvation. Our salvation is not grounded on the good things that we do uh, before coming to Christ, uh, but our salvation is very much made evident by the fact that good works spring up after we have expressed faith in Christ. And so we see that uh, towards the end of the first section of chapter 2. And then we get into uh, what we saw chapter 2 verse 11 last week, where Paul draws attention to the Gentile disadvantage and then how God has overcome those disadvantages to bring the Gentile into saving faith. And we saw last week that the Gentiles are described as individuals who were really far off from God's grace. Individuals who were not exposed to the Messiah, didn't have this anticipation of a coming Savior. They were not a part of God's people, the commonwealth of Israel— They were strangers to all these covenants that are contained in the Old Testament, uh, which means they really had no hope and they were without God. Um, Life for them had no purpose. It had no purpose in its origin and no plot in the uh, plans that were playing out. There was no um, destiny uh, that everybody was headed towards. With the climax of history, it was just kind of uh, accident by nature. And We see that God intervenes and steps in, uh, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well to include them in salvation. And so let's look at verse 11 that we saw last week. We're going to read 11 and 12, and then we're going to camp out in one verse today, and that's verse 13. Uh, So real easy today, hopefully, as far as a comprehension standpoint I really just want to focus on one verse, help you to see the truth and the glory of our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ and the impact that it has both in overcoming our past and really defining the direction of our present. What do we do now that we've come to faith in Christ? It says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our summary sentence for today. Christ's blood radically alters the Gentile's sinful past, enabling the Gentile to now draw near to God and his promises by being saved the same way as the Jew. For our kids, we can be saved and enjoy God's promises because Jesus died on the cross for Jews and Gentiles. This verse reminds us that it's Christ's blood that radically alters our destiny, radically alters our identity, radically alters what we see in the, the verses prior to verse 13. All these things that describe our past. We saw this at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 through 3. Things that describe our sinful, our sinful past. Being in the flesh, prone to follow the things of this world, in subjection to the philosophies and mindset of Satan but it's Christ's blood that radically alters that, radically changes that. Now we know that for the Jew, we see that throughout uh, a, a good portion of scripture, how the Jew, the Israelite is, is bound to God and how he's being uh, drawn to God. But this is true for the Gentile as well. And Paul wants to draw uh, specific attention to this. And so we talked last week, the things that we're saying are very much true of the Jew as well as the Gentile, but Paul is helping us to see how this, how this plays out for the Gentile. Uh, So the the blood of Christ radically alters the Gentile's sinful past, enabling the Gentile to now draw near to God and his promises by being saved the same way as the Jew. And so it's not different for the Gentile. The only thing that was different really is the amount of exposure, right? The amount of comfortability that was present for the Gentile growing up versus the Jew. And I told you last week, in regards to how this is presented in scripture, we probably feel very much like the Jew versus the Gentile, because these things that we're highlighting that were advantages for the Jew, growing up in a culture where there was an expectation of a Messiah, growing up in a culture where you were raised on the promises of God made to his people in in, in years past, right? Uh, Being taught where our hope comes from, being taught what it's like to have God active and present in his creation. These are things that for most of us weren't foreign to us. Now, those of you that grew up in a setting where you didn't have believing parents, you didn't uh, have a a culture of being raised in church or Bible study or Christian fellowship, then you very much fit the profile here that Paul's talking about. The Gentile who was foreign to all these things about who God is. Now, obviously through creation, we have a general understanding of who God is. Romans 1 talks about this. Uh, Some of the Psalms talk about this, just the, the glory and handiwork we can see in creation. But the personality of who God is, the, the personhood of who he is, the, uh, the important attributes that can't be understood, his, his deity and his godhood and his eternality can be seen in creation. But we can't always fully grasp his love and his mercy and his grace unless he tells us those things or acts in such a way where we can see him as the initiator of those things. And the Gentile, for the most part, was kept in the dark about that, right? God, we talked last week, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be the people group he was going to work through, with the intent of them then sharing that with the Gentile world, so that they too could be brought to Christ. And we talked about how the Jews kind of rejected that 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 purpose. We see that very much in the ministry of Jonah, right? A guy who's called to to share the gospel truths with the Ninevites and doesn't want to see them saved, doesn't want to see them be forgiven because he's angry at what they've done to his people right? Um, But very much we see that the Gentiles who were in the dark, God very much intended to bring them into the light through Israel. But for the most part, they were raised in a setting and a culture where they were darkened to these things, didn't have exposure to these things. Now, the Jew, the Jewish boy, the Jewish girl who grew up still had a responsibility to take hold of that faith personally, right? They weren't weren't, uh, part of God's people from the spiritual side of things just because they were This is because they were Jewish, right? God didn't save people in the Old Testament because they were ethnically Jew. What we are saying, though, is that they very much had advantages to understanding who God is and and what God desired and, and had very much the advantage to turn to him because of that exposure, right? Today in the New Testament, those of us raised in the church, we have some of those similar advantages, right? Whether we're Jew or not Jew, those of us who are raised in the Christian fellowship, we have these advantages, Right, And those that aren't, the Scriptures talk about them being even further far off from God. We're all separated from God when we're born into this world. We're all in need of a Savior. We're all dead in our sins. All these truths we're seeing in Ephesians very much true of the Jew, the Gentile, the unchurched, and the churched. But what he's talking about here is these advantages we're missing, and now we've been brought into full inclusion to these things. And what that means is it doesn't matter if you were born a Jew or not. doesn't matter if you were born to Christian parents or not. You too can become a part of God's people regardless of the setting that you were born into. That's the point that Paul's making here, that the blood of Christ radically changes the past and enables the Gentile, even the Jew, to draw near to God and his promises by being saved by faith in the blood of Christ. Now, this verse uh, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, parallels what we saw back in Ephesians 2, verse 4. After Paul had highlighted our individual um, condition, so verses 11 and 12, talking more about our condition as a people group. Those who grow up separated from the things of God. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, he's talking about our individual condition, being dead in sin, walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Um, We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Paul talks about our sinful past, and then he talks about God stepping in and decisively changing things. This was true about you, but now this is now true about you because God did something about it. This was true, God changed it. What we're seeing now here in verses 11, 12, and 13 is that there were things that were true about us as a people group, but now things are different. God has changed it. God has done something to alter that. So there's a parallel in how Paul is laying out his arguments here showing God's decisive and gracious intervention on behalf of the lost and the perishing sinners. It's that idea of sin that's really our separator, right? Sin and its accompanying despair is the great separator in this world. Our sin and the lack of hope and the despair that comes from our sin separates us both from God and from other people, right? When we live according to the passions of our flesh, it divides us, divides us from God and divides us from others. Hopefully you're seeing that in where we're studying right now in our D groups and our C groups in James chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to James chapter four and we'll see some of that separation that comes because of our sin and how it plays out with our relationships to each other. Not only, and this is where Paul's going in the rest of chapter two. He's not just talking about us being reconciled to God. He's talking about us being reconciled to other human beings too. God's plan for salvation is not just to take individuals and make them friends of God, But in that process, he's also desiring to make a people that are friends with each other, right? He's wanting to take Jew and Gentile and unite us together to build this great temple where Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But because of sin, we're divided, right? James chapter four, verse one, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. You skip down to verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James is having to address this ongoing sin issue until Jesus comes back and eradicates sin completely. Even as believers, we have to push back against sin that would divide us from other people, right? We quarrel, we fight, we argue, we get frustrated with each other. Why? Because there are things that we want for ourselves, things that we don't have, things that we're not trusting God for, And so it causes us to treat others wrongfully. It causes us to judge other people, to think the worst of them. I was sharing with our men's D group this past Wednesday. I'm the type of guy, you tell me something bad about somebody, I'm probably gonna believe it or I'm tempted to believe it without even investigating it. I'm prone to think the worst of people. You tell me something great about somebody and I'm like, I'll be the judge of that, right? Like, let me do some investigation and see what you're missing because that person can't possibly be as great as you're telling me that they are right? like That's how my sinful flesh reacts. You tell me something bad, and I'm like, I knew that. I knew that, right? Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. You tell me something great about somebody, and I'm like, probably not, right? Probably not. Why? Because my pride. My pride wants to be better than other people and not uh, short of what other people are accomplishing, right? And that's how our flesh works, and we quarrel, and we fight, and we, we push back against each other. Why? Because sin is present. It separates us from God and it separates us from each other. And the blood of Christ is meant to change all of that. It's meant, draw, it's, meant to, it's meant to bring us near to God and near to each other. Sin is that great separator and sin is what needs to be dealt with if these things are gonna be fixed. Our sin and our lack of hope prevent us from drawing near to God, prevent us from treating others the way that we should treat them because we have a need to take care of ourselves right think about what we talked about in the sermon on the mount right i'm supposed to treat other people the way that i wish to be treated whether i ever get treated that way or not by them right my my job is to treat others the way that they should be treated whether they return the favor or not and we said that we can do that We can keep doing that. We can persevere in doing that because we trust that who's gonna treat us the way that we should be treated or the ways that we wanna be treated by grace and mercy. It's our Father, right? It's our Heavenly Father. He treats us the ways that we wanna be treated. So if other human beings aren't, that's okay. That's okay because I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm content, I'm satisfied with God treating me in those ways. And he's doing it out of grace and mercy because I certainly don't deserve it. The Gentiles were far off from being fixed in regards to this sin problem because they weren't even being exposed to right thinking about things, right? That's why the Gentile is considered further away than the Jew, because the Gentile didn't have a setting where he was being told about covenants. He didn't have a setting where he was being told about sacrifices, right? Think about the advantage of the, of the Jew. He's being told about God's expectations, being told how we don't meet those expectations, and being told what to do in response to not meeting those expectations, right? So a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl would have grown up going to the temple, going to the tabernacle, expressing regret and, and remorse over sin, right? They would, have been, they would have been bringing sacrifices to show their inability to keep the law. The Gentile didn't have that advantage. They were they were trying to do things with their guilt and, and they were creating religions and creating gods and trying to pacify what was written on their hearts, right? A knowledge of God, a rejection of God, an embracing of the things of this world, but still trying to manage, how do, I, how, do I, how do I react to the things that I keep being prompted to in my heart? The ways that I'm created, I know there's more. They didn't have special revelation. Now, you think about the Old Testament, and again, this week is heavy intro, and we'll fly through the outline, okay? So, by design. So, don't panic. Think about Old Testament. Think about the Gentiles that come to faith in the Old Testament, right? Ones that maybe come to your mind immediately: Rahab, uh, Ruth, right? If you even go further digging, you find out that when Israel left Egypt, it wasn't just people who had come from Abraham's line, right? There were some other people that had gotten mixed into that over the course of the time spent in Egypt. So other slaves, other people from other nations were kind of included in that. There's even some debate as to whether an individual like Caleb was, tr- was a true, full-blooded Israelite because he's even identified as somebody who may have ties to some of the Canaanite culture. God was grafting Gentiles in in the Old Testament, right? Not maybe to the same grand scales we see in the New Testament, but there were, there were Gentiles, people that weren't descendants of Abraham that were coming to faith and coming a part of the Jewish community, right? But then the New Testament, man, the the floodgates get opened, right? The floodgates get opened. Look what we see in um, Acts chapter 10. If you just want to write some of this down, we're not going to take the time to read all of this, but I want to just kind of walk you through real quick some things in Acts. And I want you to, and again, it's hard because we are so, for most of us, we are so far separated from any tension between being Jew and being Gentile, right? It's just not part of our culture. It's not part of our conversation. We read this stuff in scripture. It doesn't really resonate with us because we haven't felt it before, right? The further we get away from even things in our own country, things that used to be this way and now they're not, be, feel, feel out of the ordinary and just feel crazy for us to even think that life was ever like that, right? The, the fact like women used to not have the, the right to vote, Right? people of other skin colors, not having some of the same privileges as other people in this country, right? We have grown up not seeing that, not feeling that, to when we watch movies and we see uh, certain things, we're just like, man, I can't believe that used to be true in our country. I can't believe that that used to be how we functioned in this country, right? Fast forward way far past the Jew-Gentile tension that's so heavily prevalent in the New Testament. It's just unfamiliar to us, right? But we look back into the history and we can thank God that, that that dividing line of hostility has been torn down to where we don't feel as impacted by that today, right? Because in Acts chapter 10, you got people on opposite spectrums. It's the conversation and the conversion of, of Cornelius through the ministry of Peter, right? You read through that chapter, you've got Cornelius, who's a Gentile guy who had served in the Roman army. In some capacity, he has come to know Yahweh and is considered a fear of God, but doesn't know Christ, doesn't have the full gamut of revelation, Peter does, right? And so God unites these two through dreams, right? They're both having visions and dreams about how they need to come together. You can read it in Acts chapter 10. But by the end of the chapter, Peter has journeyed to interact with Cornelius, right? And look what it says in um, Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Peter shows up and says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I mean like talking about like a spread for somebody who's trying to evangelize and share the gospel with others. You got a bunch of people who haven't fully converted yet, who've called upon the evangelist, called upon the missionary, called upon the pastor, called upon the Christian and said, "Tell us the gospel. Tell us what we have to do." Right? Like what, a, what an opening statement. I mean, like Peter's just, just had it handed to him basically, right? So Peter opened his mouth and said, "'Truly I understand, God shows no partiality. "'But in every nation, anyone who fears him "'and does what is right to is acceptable to him, "'as for the word that he sent to Israel, "'preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, "'he is Lord of all. "'You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea.'" Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I mean, this is the same presentation Peter would give to the Jews, right? Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. There's that term circumcised. This is the Jews. They're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles for they're hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptize, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is unbelievable if we could remember what it was like to have Gentiles who didn't feel like they had exposure to the things of God to be saved and now it's opening wide for them. You go into chapter 11 and Peter's rebuked for this. Verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God so when Peter went up to Jerusalem the circumcision party criticized him saying you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. I mean, like they're, they're super critical about an outward external thing, whether this has happened or not, right? And they say, hey, that's fine that these people got saved, but they are not circumcised, so that's a problem for us. But Peter began and explained to them in the order, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance, I saw a solid vision. He kind of recounts like how he got there, how all this came about. You skip down to um, verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God even changes the hearts of these Jews who were initially critical of it, and they become open to it as they hear this recounting of how these individuals have come to Christ. You get into Acts 13, and Paul and Barnabas are rejected by the Jews. They're not okay with the gospel being presented, but the Gentiles are present there, and it says in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, that, that now the salvation was going to come to the Gentiles in light of the Jewish rejection. The Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord as many were appointed to eternal life. Then you get into Acts 15. The Jerusalem council meets. There's, there's frustration from the Jews wanting to make the Gentiles do Jewish things. Verse fifteen, Chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses... You can't be saved. And so there was debate and dissension. And so this Jerusalem council is formed to figure out, are we going to impose Jewish restrictions upon the Gentiles in order for them to be saved? You fast forward to verse 19, and they come up with a list of things that they're going to ask Gentiles to adhere to for the sake of unity. For the sake of unity, as as we're getting this all worked out, Jews and Gentiles coming to the same faith, to the same Christ, here's some things we're going to hold you to or ask you to submit to for the sake of unity. This is how our our Gentile history progressed into a one that we look back to in a salvific way, that we as Gentiles have been extended grace and mercy from God to be included with his people because prior to all this happening, or if this had not happened, all of us would have been born into a situation where we were far off. None of us would have been born into a situation where we can be considered near to the things of God because the Gentiles wouldn't have been included on this grand scale. But God saw fit to intervene. These things were true, but now you can be included. And it's Jew and Gentile alike having the same hope now. No matter our background, no matter our family history, no matter our culture that we come from, we have the same need and we have the same hope extended to us. Look what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the blood of Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God overrides the Jew and the Gentile's heart to save them. And then back in Ephesians 2, we'll get here in a couple of weeks, verse 17. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, the Jew and the Gentile, in one spirit, to the Father. How does this come about? How can we be included with God's people? It's by the blood of Christ we see here in verse 13, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. It's by the blood of Christ. Think about this in three ways. Historically, we're reminded in this verse that Jesus physically died on a cross. But him simply dying on a cross historically doesn't save us because there are plenty of people who, who believe that a historical man named Jesus died on a cross. The theological piece is that we are reminded Jesus died on a cross in a substitutionary way. It's by his blood that we can be brought near to God. And then experientially, we are reminded that Jesus died on a cross so we can be united with him All of this playing a part in bringing us to salvation, it's a historical event. It physically happened. It was for a theological purpose, not because Jesus sinned, not because he deserved it, but because we did. And when we unite with him through faith, we become individuals who are now viewed as being in Christ, in Christ. When we convert, when we put our faith in this, this crucifixion becomes spiritually applied to us look what acts chapter 2 verse 37 says peter sharing the gospel day of pentecost now when they heard this this is jews and gentiles both present there when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is for you for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Man, is available to the Jew and the Gentile, even to those who are way far off. We can be included, we can be united with him in Christ. By God's grace, we're included in all of this. We become really what's viewed as being a part of true Israel. We won't take time to read all these sections. Let me encourage you to write down uh, Romans 9, 6 through 8, and then Romans 11, 13 through 36. This is Paul talking in the book of Romans about the Jew and the Gentile relationship and how we've been grafted in to true Israel. Because Romans 9 says that you're not truly Israel just by being born ethically Israel. You're true Israel if you express faith like Abraham did. Galatians 3 verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Man, you sit here today as a Gentile. And you have the opportunity to be included in the people of God because he saw fit to include us in the plan with the blood of Christ. And he didn't have to. He didn't have to. He chose to by his mercy and his grace to extend salvation to us. So what does that mean coming out of this verse for us? Number one, believe the blood of Christ can and does alter your past. Believe that the blood of Christ can and does alter your past. My past identity has been decisively overruled and redefined. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ. It's been overruled and redefined. What was previously true about me is no longer true about me because now what I'm being told is that something is different now, but now what was true is no longer true. And my past is being redefined because previously I was described as one who was in the flesh, one who was following the course of this world, one who was separated from Christ. But now I am in Christ. I'm in Christ Jesus. My past identity has been decisively overruled and redefined. Now, we've been talking the past couple of weeks. We need to look to our past. We need to remember our past. We need to not forget our past. It keeps us humble. It keeps us grateful, but we don't live in the past. We don't live in this past identity. We live in the now, the present realities that scripture tells us about. There were clear things that were true about me at one time, but these things have changed now, dramatically and decisively. And we have a new identity that's not determined by who we were in the past right? We're going to continue to see God's tearing down whether we used to be a Jew or whether we used to be a Gentile. We are now considered a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ, regardless of our past history, regardless of the sins that we were involved in, regardless of our national history and our cultures that we come from. We are united in Christ. This new identity goes from being in the flesh to being in Christ, and it's an identity that we can never lose. We can never lose this identity, right? So the world tempts us to find our identity in some of the roles that we play, right? Like my identity is wrapped up in being a husband, uh, being a father, being a mother, being a wife, being an athlete, being a whatever job that you work. If we're not careful, we wrap our identity up in these things that are, that are external and that are temporary, that are superficial and are earthly. The thing, that, the thing that's scary about wrapping your identity up in those things is all those things can change. Those things don't last, right? Just because you're a husband or a wife one day doesn't mean you are the next day, right? doesn't mean that you are one the next day. Just because you're a dad or a mom today doesn't mean that you are tomorrow. Those things can be taken from us. Those things can change sometimes overnight. I've spoke before in our chapel service at at Trinity to our high school kids, and I know that for a high school kid, even more so maybe than a middle school kid, as you get better and better athletically, it is so tempting to wrap your identity around what you play, how good you are, and where it's going to take you. And then you become a junior or senior and you experience a devastating injury where your knee is no longer like it used to be. And your hopes and plans and dreams are changed overnight in a, in a matter of seconds. And what you used to be known for, you will no longer be known for. The truth about our Christian identity is that it cannot be taken from us. It cannot be taken from us overnight, and it cannot be taken from us over decades. It cannot be stripped from us. Once we are in Christ, that is who we are for the end of time and beyond, right? From this age and in the age to come, it cannot be taken from us. So what we used to be, certainly true about us, but things have changed. But now we are in Christ. These fleshly corruptions that separate us previously, they're being torn down. Even the respectable sinner and the despicable sinner are being united. Those of us who who maybe have a background that's less stained from an earthly perspective versus those who have been saved from an awful past. We are being united together as Christians, washed in the blood of Christ. Overruled and redefined. Number two, my past limitations have been decisively reversed. Reversed. Whereas I was previously described as being far off, I'm now being described as very near. I've been brought near to God, brought near to the promises, brought near to the people. Remember, I was separated from Christ, alienated from the people of Israel, strangers to the covenants, no hope. Without God, now I've been brought near. No longer far off, now I've been brought near. Once far, no longer true. We've been Brought near like God's covenant people have always been viewed or described as being near to him. Psalm 148, 13 through 14 talks about God's covenant people being near God. As I was pondering this and meditating on this truth, what it means to go from being far to being near, man, I just felt like God just reminded me that that's possible because my sin, which was very near, has been brought far away now, Right? How does God describe his perspective of our sin? He talks about it being as far as the east is from the west now, right? Something that was very present, very real, and very descriptive of us has been ripped away and buried in the seed, never to be returned again. That's how scripture talks about it, right? The picture in the Old Testament was those sins were placed on the scapegoat and the goat was released into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The picture being that your sins are taken away, never to come back, never to be remembered. The only way I can be going from far away from God to near to God is if my sins go from being near to God to far away. And that's the great reversal that's happened here. By the blood of Christ, I'm being brought near and my sins are being pushed far away. We're being brought close to him and to others. Look what uh, verse 19 says of chapter two of Ephesians. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. This is like um, a picture of the foundation of a house going up. And then you fast forward to the book of Revelation, and you see the end product, right? I've been walking in our neighborhood regularly for the past two months. They're building in a neighborhood behind us, and I've kind of been able to see daily what it looks like for a house to go up, right? So I walk by these houses. There's nothing there. Then it's leveled there. Then the footings are dug, and then the footings are poured, and then the foundation is poured, and then the walls start going up, and then the exterior is going up. I'm seeing houses go up before my eyes, right? Right? And then I talked to a guy randomly in Sinai who said, hey, my house is being built in that neighborhood. And he said, it'll be done in June. So he'll have the finished product in a couple more weeks. right? What we see here is a picture of the early stages, this early foundation where people are being brought to Christ, united, a foundation, a cornerstone, a holy temple. What do we see in Revelation? People from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping him for eternity, praising the lamb, the slain lamb, the crucified lamb who has come back to life who is worthy to open these scrolls that we see in Revelation. right? Every tribe, every nation, every tongue being included. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. My past limitations have been reversed. I've been brought near where I was previously far away. I'm now part of these promises, the partaker of these promises that were previously foreign to me. Uh, chapter three of Ephesians, verse four, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. What mystery is he talking about? Verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. And look what it says, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We're previously described as foreigners to these promises, not partakers of these promises, but by Christ's blood we are now full participants, full rights to the promises. The promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12:3 that we will be a receiver of God's blessing, right? Promises, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and your descendants. And now we are part of that descendant blessing being received. Why? Because we've been grafted in. Part of the promise made to David that we get to be a part of his salvation and his love and provision. Look what the the promise looks like in 2 Samuel. Let's see here, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, but not just to David, to his offspring forever. We're now participants in this promise. Great salvation, steadfast love directed towards us as the offspring of God's people. You could write down, we won't look at it. Um, Isaiah 55, one through three, talks about more of the promises made to David. Then we're obviously part of the promise made to New Testament believers, the new covenant, where we get obedient hearts and eternal forgiveness, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. These are some of the, this is just a quick three-part promise made in the old testament that we are partakers of now but all the promises you read in scripture we now become possessors of because of the blood of christ but now in christ jesus you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ believe the blood of christ can and does alter your past number two believe the blood of christ can and does impact your present It's not just that our past has been changed, but our present and then ongoing present into the future has been altered because of the blood of Christ too. Number one, by being brought near to God, I should now be far from the world. You get that? You can't be far away from God and near to the things of this world, which is how we were described. You can't go from being far and near to the world, far from God near to the world and be relocated to be near with God and still be near with the world. He doesn't bring all of it with you right? We don't go from being far to near and bring all the baggage with us. What does James 4 talk about? Let's go back there where we're looking at our D groups and C groups. For our women, you get a chance to talk about this together in our groups on Wednesday. What does it say? Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have both. You can't be both. You can't be close To both. To be an enemy of one is to be a friend of the other and vice versa. What are we told to do instead? To submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil and he will flee from you, to draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Not far away anymore, but near. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, but the laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We can't be near to both God and the world. We have to separate from the world to be brought near to God, and that's what the grace of God and the blood of Christ does. Now, we're obviously in the world. We're near the world physically, but we don't have to be a part of it. I'm going through that series in Daniel with Red Oak right now, listening to it uh, on the podcast. And what you find time and time again is Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are so distant from the Babylonian culture, even though they are right there in the middle of it, right? They've been chosen as like, Nebuchadnezzar's special people group, and they are being indoctrinated by the things of Babylon. They're being altered and changed. Nebuchadnezzar wants to do everything he can to change their identity, changes their name, uh, takes part of their physical uh, aspects away from them. Um, they're, They're being redefined with the philosophies and the ideologies of Babylon, the religion of Babylon. And what do you find? 70 years later, after Nebuchadnezzar's gone, after the Babylonians are gone, Daniel in his old age under a new empire, what's he doing? Praying to his God three times a day, right? He gets thrown into the lion's den by a whole new empire. Years after he got uh, taken from being near to the things of God in Israel, taken far away physically and engulfed in the things of this world. And he is no more near. I mean, he is he is the exact same nearness to God as he was back in Israel, right? His faith is grounded, we can be in this world and be very far from it. Number two, by being brought near by his blood, my allegiance is now directed to him. This past event, the cross, the blood, we experience it in the present through conversion, through faith. It gives us peace with both God and his people. Now, we should be living in defiance to what James 4 talks about. We shouldn't be quarreling and fighting and struggling with each other. We should be united with each other. Wow because we've been saved the same way. Man, but the blood of Christ has eradicated the sin penalty in our life, and now he is working to remove the sin to sanctify us to holiness. Remember, we're made Christians, not by our good works, but we are brought near so that we can be sent out to do good works, the good works that he prepared beforehand. But now, he's changed everything. What was true is no longer true. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God saw fit to intervene to bring the Gentiles in by the droves. And if we could, if we had the capacity, we could trace our salvation all the way back. And the implications that flew in the New Testament from the Gentiles being saved like this, leading to our salvation ourselves. The identity truth to remember today. Number one, every Christian now enjoys nearness to God and the things of God, the promises of God on the grounds of Christ's blood. This change has occurred not because we decided to do better, not because we figured things out, not because we reached a point of enlightenment on our own wisdom, right? I didn't change my past because I decided to do things better. My past has been changed and my future is now different because Christ because of his blood, he has brought me near. He has brought me near, not me, myself. The application, the question for you to kind of ponder as we lead today, am I enjoying the fruit of being near to God by experiencing less conflict in my relationship with others because I am finding satisfaction in his promises and plans for me? Am I enjoying the fruit of being near to God by experiencing less conflict in my relationship with others? Remember, part of this purpose of salvation is to unite us, to bring us together so that we're not quarreling and fighting anymore. Am I enjoying the fruit of being near to God by experiencing less conflict in my relationship with others because I'm finding satisfaction in his promises and plans for me? Things that were previously foreign to me, things that I was previously separated from, these things are now gifted to me. I'm a participant in these things. That last part of James chapter four talks about the plans that we make and being submitted to God's greater plans than we make, even when our plans change. We were kind of wrapping up, and I'll close with this. We were wrapping up our time in D group, and we were just kind of talking about this idea of of holding our plans loosely. Doesn't mean we don't make plans. Doesn't mean we don't plan for the future. Like that's responsible. That's what we should do. But we hold those things loosely so that God can change them, which he can change them whether we hold them loosely or not, right? But our reaction to that change will be greatly shaped by whether we're holding on to our plans loosely or not. I found myself this week having made plans. Those plans were stripped from me. I was shocked by it and I was frustrated and was tempted to quarrel with somebody about it. And this was after we studied this passage, <laughs> right? After we studied this passage. And I caught myself on Thursday afternoon being reminded of the fact why am I holding so tight to this? I don't need to hold so tight to this. I can trust the Lord's plans and his promises because I was far away from those things in my life at one point, and I've been brought near, so I can hold loosely to those things. And I can make plans, but I can say, if the Lord wills, because his plans are better than mine. And I can be thankful that he's included me in those plans when I was previously separated from him. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this verse, this one verse today, with the deep implications that it has for us. But now... We were far off, but now you have brought us near. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so we praise you and worship you today because Christ is everything that we need him to be and everything that we can't be. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for including us in your promises. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for being our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.